Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. And all donations in September will be going to the SPCA in the memory of my best pal Boris, who sadly passed away earlier this month. Okay, on with the show. The Soviets were up 2-1-1 in the first four games of the Summit Series, and Canadians were shocked to find that the Soviets were anything other than a pushover on the ice, and Team Canada itself was trying to solve the riddle that was the Soviets. For the players, leaving Canada would come as a blessing as they were able to get away from the spotlight and begin to focus on coming together as a team and overcoming adversity. With the series now moving to Moscow, there would be two weeks as players rested, and then they took on Sweden for two games. These two games would turn out to become vital as part of the legend that would become the 1972 Summit Series. The players on Team Canada were behind in the series, but they were beginning to come together as a team. Many of the players on the team had played against each other for years, and for some, there was a real hatred. All of that had to be overcome for the team to win. During the hiatus, the team would begin to practice so that they could plan for how the Soviets would play. This meant that the 35 players were split into two teams. One side would play as Canada, the other side with the tactics of the Soviets. Rod Gilbert said, We practiced against that and we got more familiar as we went along. On September 16th, Team Canada played its first game against Sweden, defeating them by a score of 4-1 and outshooting the Swedes 34-24. The game was anything but pleasant, with 12 penalties, including 8 against Canada. Wayne Cashman would also need 50 stitches on his tongue after the game after Ulf Sterner slashed him. Two days later, on September 18th, Canada was up 2-1 in the third period, but the game would finish 4-4, thanks to a goal late in the game to tie it for Canada after they fell behind. The games were not seen as important back in Canada, but they would become incredibly important for Team Canada. Rod Gilbert would say, in Canada, we became more of a team. Don't forget that we played against each other all those years. Guys like Esposito, Cashman, Cornoyer, and Savard. It was hard. Now we were all on the same team. It was desperation. We had to get our act together and play as a unit, rather than as individuals. They were teaching us a hockey lesson like we had never seen. The two games allowed Canada to get their legs into the game, Paul Henderson would say. Once we got onto the bigger ice in Sweden, by the time we had skated 10 to 12 days, maybe two weeks, we got our legs. In the days leading up to Game 5, Team Canada began to analyze the Soviet rinks, which were very different from what they were used to. The rink was wider, and it had fish netting draped over the ends of the rink above the boards instead of glass. A puck was also considered in play if it hit the netting, which was strung tight and would send a puck back onto the ice at nearly the same speed it had left it. 
On September 22nd, Team Canada took on the Soviets for the fifth game of the series. At the arena, Team Canada found that despite how some fans were mad at them, many others still supported them. Of the 15,000 people gathered at the arena in Moscow, 3,000 were Canadians who had made the trip to the Soviet Union for the game. Several members of Team Canada would say later that those 3,000 fans that traveled to Moscow were why Canada won the series. Tickets were hard enough to get for the trip and the games that even Maurice the Rocket Richard was told he would only get tickets for two of the four games if he went. On top of that, tens of thousands of telegrams of support were sent to the players from Canadians. For Team Canada, that support would help lift them up as they attempted to get back into the series and get back on track. One letter of support came from Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau who told the team, quote, We're with you all of us. Get in there and win. We are 22 million supporting you. Of course, not all cards were nice. One, to Wayne Cashman, said, If you love your country, go jump in the Moscow River and let the hockey players play good hockey. Before the game, Harry Sinden wrote of the change for Team Canada, stating, We are underdogs now. That is one of the reasons why we should play better. In the pre-game introduction, Jean Rattel, the captain for the game, was given the traditional gift of bread, and all the players received red and white carnations. That would lead to a funny situation when Phil Esposito skated to receive a flower, but his skate blade hit a flower stem on the ice, sending him down to the ice. Esposito laughed at the fall and bowed to the spectators. Esposito. The game showed that things were beginning to change for Team Canada. With goals by Clark, Parisi, and Henderson, the team was up 3-0 by the end of the second period. The Soviets would bounce back with a goal in the third, but Henderson scored to make it 4-1. Then, the Soviets laid down a major attack, scoring four straight goals over five minutes, including two goals eight seconds apart, to take a 5-4 lead.
Ivan side. The Soviets keeping the pressure on here. Harlebonk getting it out to the blue line. There's a long shot. They score! They find the score. Lushev shot from the blue line. I don't know whether it was deflected or not. It was shot back in his own. If you give him the puck, he walked right in, brought the puck to the outside, he caught Pony Esposito trying to do the split to cover it, and he put it between his legs. The Soviets would win the game by that score, and they would take a 3-1-1 lead. The Canadians in the stand, though, did not boo Team Canada this time. Instead, they sang O Canada as the team left the ice. Clark would say, It was a long, long way from home, and having those people there was comforting. After the game, Coach Harry Sinden stormed into the coach's room and threw a cup of coffee against the wall. And while the team had played better, they needed to win all three games that remained in the series. At the same time, budding superstar Gilbert Perron left the team after Game 5 to focus on the upcoming NHL season, as well the supplies of beef, milk and beer that the Canadians had shipped from Canada had been stolen and were now being sold to the guests of the same hotel that the Canadians were staying at. Through the night after the game, people would call the rooms of the Canadians to keep them up and get them off their game. Gilbert would say, We lost the first game in Moscow. We had a 3-0 lead. We got together afterward and said we weren't going to lose another game. We had to fight the referees and everyone else. They tried to distract us. It really united the team. Assistant coach John Ferguson agreed with that assessment, stating, We played 50 minutes of hockey, but we've got to play 60 minutes against this club. Heading into Game 6, most probably didn't think it was going to be a turning point for Canada. It was likely they thought they would see a game that the Soviets would officially win the series. But that was not the case, as Canada was ready to take back the series and the title of hockey supremacy. The Soviets were unhappy with the 3,000 fans who were cheering for Canada during Game 5, and they would break up the visitor section and scatter the fans around the building. All this did was cause the Canadian fans to cheer louder. Throughout the first period, no one was able to score, and Ken Dryden stood on his head stopping 12 shots as Canada killed off three power plays. It would not be until 1-12 in the second that the Soviets opened the scoring. This time, though, Canada was not about to lose its confidence. During a lapse by the Soviets, Canada roared back to score three goals in only one and a half minutes, taking a 3-1 lead. Dennis Hull scored to tie it. Yvonne Cornoyer scored the go-ahead goal, and Paul Henderson put in the third goal on a 30-foot slap shot. By the end of the second, the score was 3-2. Three-man break for the Soviets. Two-on-one. Yakushev coming in on the defense, and his shot went wide. As he tried to pick the left corner, Yakushev knocked Cornoyer over. Another drive from the blue line. It's We'll have to wait to see what happens on that play. Down for Gilbert at center. Over the line. The shot hit the defenseman. Another chance for Gilbert. A shot wide on. Another one. The score! Canada has tied it up. Patel was in on that. Shot is blocked. Now, Paul comes out of nowhere. 
throws it up top. A shot from the blue line was blocked by here's Stable that's getting it away. It's back to the net. Barrett is in the door by Waye. Got it in from Red Barrison. Warren Waye for Canada. For Brad Park and Ken Dryden, two players who had not been playing at their peak during the series, this was the game they would put in the solid effort and play their first big game. The Canadians were also able to hold the Soviets to only one power play goal despite the Soviets getting many more power plays than the Canadians. Through the game, Canada had received 31 minutes in penalties, while the Soviets had only four and the Canadians were able even to shut down a two-minute, two-man advantage for the Soviets when Phil Esposito was called for a high-sticking major and the bench was given a minor for protesting the call. And rather than rely on the dump-and-chase method they had previously, they kept possession going into the offensive zone. Commentator Brian Conacher would say, For the first time the Soviets had opened the door a crack, and Team Canada had rushed through like a freight train. One thing that was done in Game 6 that would likely turn the tide of the series was Canada focused heavily on Soviet superstar Valery Karlamov. Anytime there was a chance, Karlamov was ridden into the boards. Brad Park focused on him especially, and in the second, Karlamov knocked down Bobby Clark, which proved to be a bad move. Clark rubbed his glove in the face of Karlamov to cause him to lose his temper, and the two began to fight. Other players would harass Karlamov, including Peter Mahovlich giving him an elbow. Then came the event known simply as the Slash. It occurred when Clark raced down the ice to catch Karlamov, who was skating into the offensive zone. He then slashed Karlamov on the ankle, injuring it, and some believe even fracturing it. Clark was giving a minor penalty in a 10-minute misconduct, while Karlamov went to the dressing room. The Soviets, the first score of the, of the game, and at 2-12, all the scoring in the second period. 3-1 for Canada, as the puck goes back to Ragolin, number 5. They're five aside, both teams a man short. Soviet moves to the attack at center ice. Karlamov passes back. Here's a roller in front, a shot. Knocked down by Bergman, who fell in front of it. And there's going to be a penalty, I believe, on this one. Here's a mix-up. And the uh, Soviet player shoved a bit. Now Bergman goes over to the Soviet player, puts the... Uh, Karlamov would return to play and nearly scored on the power play, but he would be severely changed in this play for the rest of the series. Karlamov would say, Bobby Clark was given the job of taking me out for the game. John Ferguson, assistant coach of Team Canada, would say, I remember that Karlamov's ankle was hurting pretty bad. I called Clark over to the bench, looked over at Karlamov and said, I think he needs a tap on the ankle. Don't think twice about it. It was us versus them, and Karlamov was killing us. I mean, somebody had to do it. In 2006, Clark would say he was unaware of the sore ankle, and he didn't remember Ferguson telling him to go after Karlamov. He would say, We were going for the puck together, he pushed me with the stick, then turned around and skated away. I caught up with him and I hit him in the leg, not thinking at all where or how I hit. I could hit them on the leg, but I don't forget that they did the same things to me. I'm all for fairness, so the players who play tough hockey have to be prepared to get the same thing back. And I was ready for that. Soviet hockey had no fights, so the players used other methods to get their point across. Like a little bit of stick work here and there, you know. 
and I personally don't mind this. I'm a tough player and I respect toughness in others, but if I am poked with a stick, I will do the same. We just had to adapt to the new ways of doing things, that's all. In Canada, people were divided over the incident. Some saw it as retribution for what the Soviets were doing to the Canadians on the ice and not getting called. Others would consider it a dirty play. Opinion is divided on whether or not it had an outcome in the series as well. Karlamov had been one of the best players for the Soviets, and he would miss Game 7, and he did play in Game 8, but he was not 100%. The refereeing in the game remained a topic of discussion, and many felt that the referees were aiding the Soviets. It didn't help matters that after the game the referees shook hands with the Soviet players, but did not shake the hands of the Canadian players. Coach Sinden would say, Those were two of the worst officials I have ever seen handle a hockey game at any time in my career. Jim Coleman would write, In case you doubt that the officials were biased, you should have seen the charming little scene at the conclusion of the game. In the great traditions of Soviet diplomacy, Russian team captain Alexander Ragolin skated over to both referees and shook them warmly by the hand. Some of the Canadian players, who noticed Ragolin's noble gesture, skated back to the referees, grinning sardonically as they held out their hands. The referees, both of whom at least had the grace to blush violently, declined to accept the Canadian peace offering. Clark would say of the whole matter, In Moscow we played much better than in Canada. We were almost equal to the Soviet team physically by then. We passed much better. We shot the puck much better. We became faster and played better on defense. Besides, you have nothing to lose. It is easier to play. And after the fifth game, we had nothing to lose. Rod Gilbert would say of the win, the most important thing was the psychological power that derived from not wanting to be what my brother called a bunch of bums and a disgrace to my country. We didn't want to lose. We couldn't have come back to Canada. As for those two West German referees, they would be replaced and not used again for the rest of the series. Thank you for joining me on Canadian History X. Information from NHL.com, Canadian Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, Maclean's, Montreal Gazette, Montreal Star, CBC, Ottawa Citizen, Regina Leader Post, and the Edmonton Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of producer Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnson. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help others find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. And we love hearing from you. So if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. And don't forget to stop by my website and social media. I've included all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.